So before we get started in the message this morning, will you all do me a favor and just pray? And um, two things I would ask you to pray for. We've been talking about not settling for complacency the last time I spoke, which seems like eons ago. Um, been talking about how we as a church sometimes, not just our church, churches in general, everyone's just satisfied. Things are good. Bills are paid. Nobody's fighting with each other that we know of. <laughs> you know, people are genuinely, seemingly happy. But yet, at the same time, in fact, I talked to a pastor friend yesterday. He goes, Ken, are you experiencing in New York what I'm experiencing in Georgia? And I said, what's that? He goes, he goes honestly, in the last three years, he goes, I can count on one hand the number of people who we've been able to see come to know Jesus. You know, we preach about it, we talk about it, we try it, he goes, it just doesn't seem to happen. He says, I can't tell you the last time somebody just says, you know what, I surrender my life to Christ. He goes, I, I just don't see it. He goes, I don't see people sacrificing. I said, well, I see some of that. You know, I see God doing some things in some people's lives. I'm excited about that. But generally speaking, an apathy that has settled into the church across America. Anybody else see it? All four of you? Right? That's good. You know what the word apathy means? It means not convinced. If you go to the root and the etymology behind the word apathy, apatheo, it, it literally means not convinced. And when you put it into the context of a biblical meaning, it means I'm unconvinced of what God is able to do. So therefore, I'm just settling for what it is. There's a lot of apathy because people are unconvinced of what God is able, capable and able to do. And I think if we're going to see any type of change... We, it has to start with us. We can't. I actually had someone a couple weeks ago when I did preach, they said, man, so-and-so should have been here for that. We're not here to say, oh, I wish somebody else would have heard that. We're here to say, God, what is it that you want to do in my life? What is it that you're wanting to teach me? And that's why I, I don't really put a lot of stock in people say, well, I don't get anything out of the messages. Well, what are you asking God to teach you through the messages? What is it that you're asking God to do in your life? I know for me, well, I'm getting off track on a rabbit trail a little bit, but I know for me, it's easy to compare. Whatever is it, what's going on over here and what's going on in their lives and what's happening over here in this church, and I think, wow, that'd be cool. Yeah, that would be really awesome. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have that. But we're comparing, right? We're always comparing. Rather than saying, God, what is it that you want to do here? What is it that you're trying to do in and through me? So here's my prayer request. If we could stop for a moment and pray. God, help me to be honest with myself. I don't care what anyone else does. I don't really care what anyone else is struggling with. For this moment, God, will you help me be honest with where I'm at with you? And number two, God, will you help me be willing to change what's not right? Can we pray that just for a moment to ourselves? And then I'll close. Lord, we come before you. And Lord, we come before you, as it says in Psalm, as the psalmist prayed, I am poor and needy, yet you think upon me. 
If we're honest with ourselves, dear Father, Lord, there is so much that we can't control. But there are some things that we can control. There are some things that you want to do in and through us. There are some things, Lord, that we can decide, that we can practice, that we might have a different outcome. And I ask, dear Father, Lord, that you would just help us to be honest this morning. Are we where you want us to be in our walk with you, in our fellowship with you, in our prayer times with you, in our obedience to you? Are we where you want us to be? Help us to be honest about that. God, I pray, Lord, until we're honest about that, Lord, nothing is going to change. So, Father, I ask that you'd help us to be honest. And then number two, Lord, will you help us to be obedient to make the changes that are necessary with the help of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, you said that when we trusted you as our Savior, the Holy Spirit took up residence within us to empower us, to fill us, to help us do the things that you've called us and asked us to be and to do. And I pray, God, that you'd work in our hearts. Not the person next to me, Lord, just me. May I respond as you'd have me to respond, Lord. And start with me as the pastor. God, I pray that you'd break me, mold me, show me the areas that I need to change in, Lord. So we as a church may exist with power and not be apathetic, unconvinced, because we don't see things happening. So Lord, would you do a work in our lives? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've talked about this whole idea of over the last years. When's the last time we saw someone saved? When's the last time we saw someone surrender their life to serving the Lord in some capacity? When's the last time that we just made a a life-altering commitment that changed the course of our life? Say, does every week have to be one of these life-altering... No, no, it doesn't. But day to day, it should be something where we are seeing God at work and God is on the throne of our lives. Amen? That should be the case. But many of us live for different purposes. And and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Living for the glory and pleasure of God. Living for the glory and pleasure of God. I have just a couple more of topical messages, then I'm going to get through a book here starting in September. We're going to start working our way through it. But the reality is, right now, I want us to think about what is it that we're living for? Many of us live for different purposes, whether it be for our family, our jobs, our retirement, uh, hobbies, or something else. We all live for the pleasure of someone or something that's meaningful to ourselves. Every one of us does. What is it that gets you up every morning and drives you to do whatever it is that you do every day? It's got to be more than just a paycheck, right? It's got to be more than just the fact that I'm going to go do something that's going to help somebody. It's got to be more than that, because that... Those things are going to eventually run out. There's a verse that I can't get out of my head because it's been there for about three or four years now because the way it was presented was just unique. I never heard it presented in that way. But it's a familiar verse. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul uses something so significant, or so insignificant, if you would, as eating and drinking. I mean, many of us in this room, we eat three squares a day and several times in between. 
And he says, whether therefore you eat or drink, something so insignificant, something that we take for granted, something that we just do so monotonously and so without even thought or, or reason, and he says, do it to the glory of God. And if he's worried about what we are eating and drinking and putting into our bodies, how much more than everything else around us? How much more everything around us? How about the money we spend? Are we doing that to the glory of God? You say, well, it's $10. It's $5. Oh, it's only $100, but you know, it's nothing compared to what I make. It's not the question. The question is, are you spending your money according to the glory of God in a way that would bring Him glory? Or how about the places you go? Would God be pleased with the places that you go with your time? Or the things that you think about? I mean, those hours throughout the day, even while you're monotonously doing your job, what is it that's occupying our mind? Would God say the things that you are dwelling on, the things that you are meditating on, the things that you are putting into your head would be for the glory of God? Or how about the movies you watch? And this is one that kills me, the conversations you have. My goodness, talk about someone who struggles with comparison. This is a killer sometimes. You get on Facebook and you got to see every morning the first thing is like, okay, who said what today? Who's, who's, oh wow, I can't believe they said that. Wow, mm, interesting. And we sit there and we will spend, before you know it, 30, 40 minutes, boom, gone. Happens. And we got to let everybody know what we're doing today. The whole world has to know what we're doing. But you know how it gets me? I can't believe so-and-so said that. That is a direct response to what I put on there. At least I think it is. He said something in contradiction to what I said. This other preacher, or this other pastor, this other person. Drives me nuts. Does this guy know what a moron he is? Does this guy understand that he's just making himself look like an idiot when he does this? Because after all, I've got this thing perfectly straight and he doesn't. Is God pleased with that? And somehow, is he, I mean, is God just somehow saying, good job, Ken, great. This Facebook thing, it really brings out the best in you. <laughs> How about Colossians 1.16? For by Him all things are created that are in heaven, that are in earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Here it is. All things were created through Him and what? For Him. Everything I do is for Him. And we forget about this where it says in Ephesians 2.10 where we are His workmanship, created unto good works. The reality is God created you for the purpose of serving Him. Bringing Him glory, that in all things, as it says in Colossians 1.18, and He is the head of the body, the church who is from the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, what? He might have the second place spot. Woo! Is that what it says? But I prayed before I ate. I said, Lord, help me have a good day today as I started out. Wonderful. Lord, I went to church this week. I even put in an offering, which I don't always do. God, you know me. He sure does. I wonder if he has the preeminence. I struggle with that. Anyone else? Is there any other honest people here? I struggle with that because I want my will. I want my way. I want to do what I want, when I want, as often as I want. That's my flesh. 
And he says that in all things he may have the preeminence. You know what the word preeminent means? First place. First place. So, once again, let's put those few things I mentioned. Money. Does God have first place with your money? Does God have first place with how you spend your time? Does God have first place in what you think about? Does God have first place in the conversations you have? I struggle with that. There's a million things that are squirrels all around me just vying for my attention. I mean, I'm sitting there last night on the phone talking to my son in Texas, and an eight-point buck walks out. Conversation on hold for a minute. Squirrel. It's like everything's a squirrel anymore. Where does God fit into all this? We say that we're believers. We say that we've committed our life to following Him. We say that we are Christ people. But where does that fit into how we live life every day? I'm not talking about being a robot where we just, well, I read my three chapters today. What we're talking about is living out what we know. See, far of us know far many of us know far more than what we practice. Right? Anybody disagree with that? We know far more than what we're practicing. But pastor, I, I, I haven't killed anybody. I, have, I haven't lied lately. I haven't stolen from anybody. I haven't, you know, cheated on any tests or quizzes because I haven't had one in forever. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. All the sins of commission. But what about the sins of omission? The things that God told you to do that you've conveniently left out. I said in Sunday school this morning. Andy Stanley made a comment that I agree with. He says most of us live with a certain amount of measurable guilt, and here's what the guilt is for. We know that there are things that we should be doing, but we also know that we're never going to do it. We feel bad about it, but not bad enough to change. So we live with a certain amount of guilt, knowing that we should, but that we never will. How many, if you're being honest, don't raise your hands, but would apply that to telling someone else about Jesus? We know we should, but eh, it's hard. I'm not going to do it. Especially family members. They're the worst. Or how about helping out with that project that we got an email about? I know I should, but eh, I, might, I, got, I, I know I should give this, but eh, there's, there's, there's the what if. I mean, some of us live our lives in view of what might happen that, but will never happen. But we're convinced it might. And therefore nothing changes. I mean, I know that there's $7,000 a week coming in, but the reality is I, mi- I might need that in case I get Alzheimer's. I might need that in case the roof needs replaced. I might do, and we always worry about the what-ifs and the mights rather than trusting God. In Psalm 149, verse 4, it says, For Yahweh takes pleasure in His people. And here's the verse I want to land on just for a minute. In Revelation 4, verse 11, it says, O Lord on God, You are worthy to receive glory and power because You have created all things and because of Your will, for Your pleasure, says in King James, for Your pleasure they exist and were created. Do you realize that God created you for His pleasure? Think about that. Just think about that. I mean, just put that in your noggins just for a moment. That God created you to bring Him pleasure. Isn't that incredible? God loves you that much. So the question is, what is pleasure? 
Well, we go back to the old trusted Merriam-Webster dictionary, and it says that pleasure is, and it gives several things, a feeling of happiness, enjoyment, or satisfaction, a pleasant or pleasing feeling. Okay, so there is a feeling involved that says, I want to feel good, I want to be happy. Did you know that there are things that make your spouse happy and things that don't make them happy? How many understood that so far? I learned that real quick. Should have got that big book, but I didn't get it, but I should have got it. But do you realize, realize that there are things that bring joy to the heart of God and there's things that discourage the heart of God by our actions? It says, pleasure, according to Merriam-Webster, is an activity that is done for enjoyment. Something or someone that causes a feeling of happiness, enjoyment, or satisfaction. Here's another one, a state of gratification. Sensual gratification. Frivolous amusement, a source of delight or joy. I think I'd go with that one. See, Americans are all about doing anything that they think will bring them pleasure, and the more, the merrier. Have you noticed this in the world? Now, here's something that doesn't, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but anybody RV enthusiasts in here? Anybody? Okay, so I'll tell you about my situation. I know a ton of people that work in the RV industry. We spent so many years in Indiana, several years in Elkhart, where that's the RV capital of the world, been to the RV Museum and so forth. So there's all these people. And they are putting out 60, 70, 80 RVs a day in some of these factories. I mean, they're huge. They're like blocks, city blocks under roof. And here's what they say. Every one of them are spoken for. Isn't that amazing? By the thousands, they're leaving all the plants from Thor and Forest River and Newmar and all these places that, you know, Holiday Ramblers and, and, and Winnebago, they're all just being pushed out. Jayco, all these different RVs by the thousands. To people all across America so that they can go out and have a fun weekend camping. A second home. Some people buy their home. They say the two most exciting days in their, in their life is when they buy it and when they sell it. I used to have a 40-foot fifth wheel. I called it the blessing and the curse. The blessing is it had no slides, it didn't leak. The curse is that it had no slides and didn't have much room. Both. But it's amazing what we will do to have fun. To set aside the cares, the concerns... The work, the frustrations, the anxieties. It's amazing what we will do. Getaways and goaways and just do anything we can do to have fun. But America, the more the merrier. Whether it's hobbies, drugs, immorality, liquor, relationships, vacations, whatever. If they think that the experience will bring them pleasure, they're all for it. That's the world we live in. But God's viewpoint is a lot different though. God says, I created you to bring me pleasure. He says, I created you for me. That's a different concept than what we are living by in America. In America, it's all about number one. Rather about the one, right? It's all about number one, not the one. And the reality is we manipulate all of life as to how it's going to affect me and my family. The media, TV, world is always praising someone for doing something. 
philanthropists, I can't even say it, are praised for how much money they give, for how much money they donate. Have you ever looked at some of the walls of hospitals? This family, this family, this family. I mean, by the thousands, the bricks that mine the walls of hospitals all over the universe. Because they gave. And I'm going to be remembered for what I gave. That, that brings me pleasure. Athletes always being applauded for being the league or the playoff MVP. I mean, look what they did. Look what they accomplished. I mean, they're just greater than everybody. But they're applauded for it. And man is always being busy building a legacy for themselves. In other words, doing the very things that bring themselves pleasure. But I think this week's message is really an admonition to love Him back in return. Do I love Him? Enough to bring Him pleasure with my life. Do I love Him? It really is that simple. Do I love Him? If we're honest with ourselves and with God, this is not always an easy task. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, and I want to begin reading with verse 34. I'm going to read through verse 38. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. There's two words there. It says first and great. First and great. So the first commandment is that you love me more than anyone else. I was sharing that passage in, in the Gospels where it says you, you must hate father and mother. And a guy in the church says, goes, God would never tell you to do that. No, but by our actions we should show that we love God more than anyone or anything else. Can that be said of us? We ask you to be in the beginning. Be honest. Because God knows us anyway, right? He knows us more than we know ourselves. He knows whether or not we truly love Him and are putting, giving Him first place in all the areas of our lives. But these two words, the first and greatest commandments, the emphasis is clear. He says, I want you to love Me more. Love Me more. And the greatest thing that you can do is love Me with all your heart. That means with your passion. Have you ever just sat in awe of who God is and what He's done? Think about His character traits. Think about who God is. Think about what He's done. Think about the fact that He's gracious. That every day that you wake up, He bestows His grace and His mercy on you. He doesn't give you what you do deserve, and He, does, he gives you more than what you do deserve. He, he has withheld hell from us, those that know Him. And He's given us an opportunity to heaven which we don't deserve. A place where there's no sickness or sorrow or no tears and nothing in Canterbury that defiles. He has been gracious and, and merciful to us. Do we ever think about that? He says, to love me with all your heart, that means with your passion, with everything that consumes you. Your soul, with everything within you. Your mind, with thoughtfulness and creativity. With all your strength, with all your ability. I wonder, just be honest. Let's just answer the question in your own heart and your own mind. Does God get first place or does He get, does he get a place? First place or a place? Which one does he have? Is he just a slice in the pie or is he the biggest slice of the pie? Does he get any of your attention? Your time, your treasure, your talents. Does God get any of that? Not just out of duty. 
God doesn't want it. He doesn't need anything we have. He can do whatever He wants. He can accomplish whatever He wants apart from us. But out of a heart of love, do we serve Him in return? I want to just tie for a moment the concept of loving God with another familiar term, which is, in the, which is the term worship. My first purpose in life is to love or worship God with all my life. Anybody disagree with that? That's our first purpose, is to love God. It's the first and greatest commandment. Worship may include singing. Some of us look at worship as that's what we do. We sing. We, we have the guitars play, the drum plays, everything else plays, and we worship God. That's not really worship in and of itself. You see, all the music can go and you cannot be worshiping God sometimes. So worship is a matter of the heart. We can worship God with music, but we also worship God through the Word and our obedience. But in Romans chapter 12, 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the what? Mercies of God. See, first of all, Paul gives us the basis of our worshiping God. God's mercy to mankind is our basis. He says, I present to you by the mercies of God. When you think about how merciful God is, if we got what we deserve for a life of sinfulness, if we got what we deserve, Vance Havner, if God treated sin the way He did in the days of Adonis and Sapphira, every church would need a morgue in its basement. Can you imagine lying to the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden, boom, done, gone. Ouch. I'm thankful that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. The fact that He is long-suffering. There's a term we don't talk about much. But you know what that term means, long-suffering? It means He's slow. He's patient with us. He's forbearing. He gives us time to understand that what what we've done is wrong and sinful and gives us an opportunity to be reminded to take care of it. I'm thankful for God's forgiveness. Man, some of us, as soon as somebody crosses us, boom, drop the hammer, taking care of business right now. It's our nature. And yet God is gracious and patient and kind and long-suffering and forbearing and forgiving. And yet we don't want to do that. So he said the whole basis of our worship is the very fact that God is merciful to you. He said, I beseech you, brethren, those of you that claim to know Jesus, by the mercies of God. That, and then number two, Paul urges us to present or offer ourselves. To present ourselves means that we present ourselves voluntarily, not by force. Isn't that amazing? It's done willingly, not of persuasion. How many would rather your children clean their room because they're supposed to rather than you forcing them with punishment? You'd rather have that, right? You'd rather your children come home on time because of the curfew out of a heart of love rather than forcing them that if you don't, you're going to lose privileges, right? We want, in the same way that God wants of us to do things willingly, but so often we do it grudgingly. It's been amazing over the years. I've been pastoring now for 20, I don't know, seven, eight years somewhere I've been in ministry. And every once in a while we'll go through a slump at the church where, Pastor, you really need to preach on money because money's really tight right now. And I refuse. I'm just terrible at that. If you're sitting here this morning, you've been here for any amount of time, you've not heard me beat you over the head about money. I never do. Here's, here's why. 
Because God's word says we're not to give grudgingly or out of necessity. Oh, but we have this great need. What's that? Necessity. Now, I can twist that and turn that and say, well, Pastor, you really need to be preaching on this, this, and this. And you'd be right. But at the same time, God wants us to give what? Out of a cheerful heart. So I can beat you over the head to do something that is a necessity. And then you turn around and say, okay, how much I got to give? How much is the need? Okay, I'll see if I can do a portion of that grudgingly. I have pastors who have friends who, in their church, that every once in a while they'll say, hey, we're really short. How much do I need to give? I don't know. I think we need about 4000 All right. But, you know, keep an eye on things. You know, and they grudgingly give because to keep it out of the red. Is that what God desires? I don't think that's what God desires. Anybody disagree with me? I don't think that go, that's what God wants with our lives. He wants us to serve Him out of a heart of love. He says to present ourselves means that we present ourselves voluntarily, not by force. It's a choice to present yourself out of a heart of love and gratitude. It is a giving back, so to speak, because of what's been given. We love Him because what? He first loved us. And God's Word says, if you love me, you what? Keep my commandments. So love is the basis. Our worship to Him is a basis of our obedience. And thirdly, Paul urges to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So we don't understand what a sacrifice is. A sacrifice is usually something that's dead, right? We, we present it alive, but it dies in the process. It's killed in the process. But he says, I don't want you to die. I don't want to kill you in the process, other than dying to self. He says, I want you to live for me. I want you to be a living sacrifice So Paul is not suggesting that we die for the Lord. We are to be a living sacrifice. And this is an offering of our entire life as a whole to be used of God. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, he says, Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for such sacrifice God is well pleased. So when we give and give of our lives, and give of our substance. God is well pleased. So let me try to illustrate in correlation between love, pleasure, and worship. The greatest pleasure we have comes from the object that is loved. For example, if we don't... If we don't love something, chances are we're not going to gain pleasure from that object. Agree? If we don't love it, it's not going to give us pleasure. There are cars that I've had in the past that don't bring me pleasure. I remember one time my dad came home with a Reliant K car. Anybody remember those hunks of junk? It was a manual. And if you know what that means, I know most generation now doesn't understand how to drive a vehicle that's a manual. But this thing was the biggest hunk of junk I've ever seen in my life. It was rusted. It was tiny. And the thing would barely stay running if I didn't keep my foot on the accelerator. So as you came up to a light, you know what you have to do on a manual? Press in the clutch so that it doesn't stall. But if I take my foot off the gas, it's going to stall. 
because it won't stay running. It's a hunk of junk. So I'm trying to keep my foot on the brake and the gas at the same time while my foot's on the other foot's on the clutch. And then the thing wouldn't move into gear. It was a, it was a, I was, a, it was embarrassing. I hated being seen in that thing. It seems like every car my parents owned like that was like that, except for their car. We had a 1972 Oldsmobile 98. We called it the boat. Went down the road like this, like you're on waves. Ooh. 454 in that baby. I mean, it was fly, but I mean, you you step on the gas and the needle went down like this and it didn't come back up. Then we had a 1971 Oldsmobile 98. We called it the Hulk. It was brown and ugly. Hey, I got my I got pulled over the first time in that car. Driving down the road, cop pulls me over. Do you know that you're speeding? No, I didn't think so. Well, he just my then my mom. He just got his license a half hour ago. Thanks, mom. I hated those things. They did not bring me pleasure. They were embarrassing. Oh, here's the point. If you don't love the object, you will have no pleasure for it. If I were to ask you to tour an RV factory with me, you'd probably think of ten other things that you'd rather do. For me, I enjoy it. Um, but if you were to concede and go to the factory with me, you'd probably not gain pleasure from that tour because you have no love for RVs. Me, on the other hand, I've owned a 40 fit RV, fifth wheel, and I'm excited to see how they're made. I want to see the technology in it. I want to see the materials they're using. I want to see how they're laid out. I want to see what they have to offer. I want to see everything about it because I love RVs. I love the RV industry. But because I love it, it gives me pleasure to go look at them. If we don't love the object of our worship, it will bring no pleasure. So for many of us, we put the object of our worship as our family, our kids, our jobs, our retirements, our hobbies, our positions, our friends, our houses, any number of things. But where does God fit in the process of our life? as being the object of both being pleasured by God and bringing pleasure to God with how we live. What we love usually brings us pleasure. God so loves you and me that He is pleasured with us. Remember that verse in uh, what was it? Um, Psalm 149. For Yahweh takes pleasure in His people. God is pleasured with us. We were created to bring Him pleasure. When we love God supremely, we will not only find pleasure in Him, but He will find pleasure in us and our worship will become more genuine. We all worship someone or something. Every one of us does. It may be a person, it may be a career, it may be any number of those things. But it might be something else. Many of us could very likely possess idols in our lives that we get more time, give more time and affection to than we do God. In fact, Honestly, anything that we give more time and affection to than God has the potential of becoming an idol in our life. Say, well, this is 2022. I don't have a statue in any of the rooms of my house like some nationalities do. Um, No, I don't have any idols. No, but if you give more time and attention and focus to that thing than you do God, it, it has the potential of becoming an idol in your life. 
Galatians chapter 1.10 is one of my favorite verses. If I should please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. Who is it that we're trying to please? I found out a long time ago that I can't please a lot of people. I can't. Oh, pastor should be doing this, or pastor should be doing that, or he should have said this and he forgot, or he should have mentioned that and he didn't say anything, or he should have helped out with this project. And he, I can't please everybody. I can't. I try. You, you know how many times in the last 10 years since I've come here, three different times someone has given me a book. Three times. One of them is The Power of a Positive No, How to Effectively Say No, and the third one is similar, but I can't remember the title. People try to always, Pastor, you need to say no. I try to please people. Anybody, anybody else like that? You're a people pleaser? You try to help people? I mean, it could be the dumbest request in the world, but somehow you're going to try to get out there and do it. Because there's a guilt if you don't. There's a, there's a feeling that, well, they're, they're going to be disappointed if I don't. And that verse has helped me. Because I'm not here to persuade men. I'm not here to please men. If I should please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. I'm here to please one, God. I want to make sure that He has my affection. I want to make sure that He has my heart. I want to make sure that He is pleasured by my obedience. Two more texts and we'll close. 1 John 4.19 We love Him because He what? First loved us. Now, I've said it for many years. Love is a decision that results in an action. It expects nothing in return. So here's the question. If I use that definition, love is an action, or a decision that results in an action, expects nothing in return. It's a decision, first of all. But here's the thing. If I said to my wife, I love you, but then I didn't give her any affection, do you think she'd believe it? I, I tell my kids, I love you, but I'm not going to provide for your clothing, your shoes, your anything. Do you think they'd believe it? No. I, I love you, but no, I, I don't have any time for you. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm busy. You see, love, saying the words, I love you, without an action behind it, means nothing. Right? It means nothing. I can say I love God, but where's the action that proves it? Gives verification of it. Said it before, you walk walks and you talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks, right? Actions speak louder than words. Hey, Johnny, go clean your room. I will. Don't tell me, show me. Actions speak louder than words. God, I love you. Where's the proof? Where's the proof? Does your neighbor know that you are a believer? Have you ever had a conversation about where he'll spend eternity? Your coworker, your friends, your relatives. Oh, but they're the hard ones. Yes, they are. I grew up with a family that my, all my aunts and uncles thought we lived in a bubble. Think what you want, but I'm going to heaven one day. Amen? You can, you can, you can criticize me and be critical of, of how I live, but the bottom line is, if I get to the end of my life and I find out that there is no God, I've lost nothing. If you get to the end of your life and find out there is a God, you've lost everything. I'm going to heaven. 
I'm spending eternity with the one who died for me. I got nothing to lose, and I got everything to gain. Do your friends, relatives, coworkers know that about you? And last verse, Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire loyalty, which is often translated love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He says, I want your love. I want your commitment. I want your loyalty to me. You see, I, I, this is just me. I could be wrong. I admit that. But my opinion is this. If we would get back to loving God supremely and first, where He has the preeminence, where He has first place in our lives, I think all the other the peripheral things will change. Anybody disagree with that? All the peripheral will change. I won't be worried about what so-and-so is doing, or what so-and-so said, or what so-and-so thinks of me, or what so-and-so is going to do next week, if I would get back to putting my focus on Jesus Christ. If I can get that right, which is hard sometimes, Man, I see what everybody else is doing. I got friends in Israel. I got friends in, uh, in, in the Dominican Republic and Antigua. I got friends in all over the world. I was like, man, that would sure be fun right now. That would that'd be like anywhere than here. This, that, yeah, that would be great. And I'm so worried about what everyone else is doing, what everyone else is saying, what everybody else is going through, that I forget about what God has for me. My mind is not on serving Him. It's not on obeying Him. It's not on sacrificing for Him. It's not on being a part of His body. It's on everything else. And really what it comes right back down to is Revelation 4.11. Thou hast created all things. You alone are worthy of glory. He says, I have created all things for my pleasure. For my pleasure they are and were created. What is it that we're living for? If we are living for anything else other than God, to have first place. We're missing it. We're missing it. Say, so how does that work? That means acknowledging Him every day. I'm not talking about spending the first... You know, I, I don't know how some of those early reformers did it. I don't get it. In fact, Martin Luther said, I have so much to do. In fact, I have so much to do today that I must start the first four hours of my day in prayer. I don't know how I do it. I can't spend the first four hours of my day in prayer. Anybody else? I can't do it. I'm just not that holy. I'm just, I'm just not. I, I struggle. I got squirrel disease. I, th- I think if AD- ADHD would have been something when I was in junior high, I probably would have got it. I don't know, but I got squirrel disease instead. But the reality is, I'm so easily distracted by anything and everything. And it doesn't even have to be something bad. It can be something good. It could be that burger over there. Man, that's distracting right now. I'm walking through Costco. You can't, you know, do you know it's like physically impossible to go to Costco and not buy a hot dog? <laughs> Who knew? Those things are awesome. And if one's good, don't worry, I don't buy two or three. But the reality is we are so easily distracted by stuff and things and people. Where does God fit in the picture of our lives? Are we willing to get up in the morning and say, God, I cannot do this apart from you. God, I need you. God, I have decisions to make. God, I'm, I'm going to be talking to people today that are going to irritate the fire out of me, and I need your grace and your mercy. God, I want to love them, but God, they're hard to love. Anybody have those people? I'm telling you, they're there. Don't worry, you're none of, I have none of you in mind when I said that. <laughs> I love you all, I do. But here's the thing. We cannot do life without God. But 
to purposely put Him in the plans of our life. To pray through the things. I, I, I used to think this Pentecostal friend of mine in Elkhart was nuts. He prayed about everything. He prayed about what clothes to put on. He prayed about what car to drive that day. He prayed about what pen to use. I mean, the guy prayed about everything. He used to think he was nuts. I think the older I get, the more I realize that this guy had it together. And I didn't. Are we willing to put him first in everything? To bring him pleasure with how I use my time, how I use my talents, how I use my treasure because He is the most important thing in my life. It's not easy. But it's what He wants of us. Those of you that are women, that have a husband, do you want to beg him to love you? Or do you want him to love you naturally? Do you want him to, to shower you with their affection naturally? Or do you want to say, hey, come on, honey, you haven't bought me flowers in a while. Come on, please. You want to do that? Or would you rather them just show up with them? Because you know they love you. Some of you women are looking around. <laughs> you don't want your spouse to have to beg your spouse to do something to please you. You want your spouse to please you naturally. So does our bride. We should bring in pleasure. Obedience. Just something to think about. And when that attention gets right, when our vertical is correct, the horizontal will take care of itself. But this has to be right first. And without this, this will not matter. We've got to come to that. As a church, I think, man, there's so much more God wants to do here in this town. So much more. So much more I want to see God do. He can, di- he can dictate what He wants. But I think God is not going to be discouraged and upset with us if we say, God, we want to see more souls. More people baptized. More people discipled. More people added to the body of Christ. More growing so that we can see missions take off in a greater way. I, I, I don't think those are things that we have to actually spend a lot of time in prayer and wondering if God would be pleased with that. I think there are things that we can do that God would be absolutely glorified in if we would make it a priority. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we humbly admit, Lord, that we cannot do this without you. We can't be obedient apart from you. We can't practice Revelation 4.11 apart from your Holy Spirit working within us and daily acknowledging the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit and spending time in prayer and reading your Word to know your heart. We need you, Father. We want to see your glory We want to see your hand at work. We want to see you be glorified in all things. Lord, we are nothing. You are everything. I pray, God, that you'd work in our hearts, Lord. Lord, I asked at the beginning, Lord, that we would just simply be honest about where we're at in our walk with you. You know us, Lord. We can't hide it from you. We can't disguise it. We We can't deceive you. All things are naked and open before you, Lord, according to Hebrews 13, 5, or 5, 13, Lord. We know that you see everything. All things are naked and open before you. Psalm 139, there's nowhere we can go from your presence. You see everything about us. You know everything about us. So Lord, I pray you help us to be honest with ourselves. Are we where we need to be?
Are we walking in complete obedience? Have we fully surrendered our life to you as your children? I ask, God, that you would work in our hearts, work in my heart, some things I need to work on. And I pray, God, that we as a church would take a step towards obedience. Every one of us, not are we good enough, not are we okay, not are we doing certain things, but are we where you want us to be? And I pray, Lord, that every one of us be willing to take a step in the direction that you'd have us to go. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just, just for a moment, every week we have an opportunity to respond to what we've heard from God's Word. Something, hopefully, from God's Word challenged you, poked your conscience, your, your mind. But because of what God has done for us, because of His mercy to us, His grace to us, He says to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Say, Pastor, if I'm honest with myself, there's some areas of my life that don't bring God pleasure. There's some areas of my life that need to change. Maybe it's my time. Maybe it's the talent issue. Maybe it's the treasure. But there's some things that need to change so that God would be pleasured by how I live my life. Say, Pastor, pray for me. There's some things that need to change. Yes, yes, yes. All over the front, all over the back, sides. Can I just challenge you? I asked you to pray at the beginning. Now I'm asking you to pray towards the end here. And whatever it is that you and God know that's not right, you and God know exactly what that area is. Maybe for some of you it's been eons since you shared your faith. Maybe it's been eons since you've sacrificed for the Lord and gave up something to do what He's called you to do. Maybe there's a lack of commitment in some areas of your life. I don't know what it is, but you and God know what it is. What is it that's withholding you from bringing Him pleasure for which you were created for Him to do? Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. Lord, you saw each and every hand that went up. Lord, you saw, Lord, our hearts. You know our hearts. You know the things that need to change. And I pray, God, that you would give grace and mercy again. Lord, that you would once again offer forgiveness for those of us that need it. Because, Lord, we fail. And we fail too often. I ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts again. Even though the service may end, I ask, God, Lord, that the invitation would remain open. That throughout this day, Lord, we would be in a spirit of prayer and commitment, Lord, to do those things that you've called us to do and to be. Be with each one who raised their hand their heart towards you this morning, Lord. That you'd offer them boldness and courage to do the right thing. And, Lord, we'll praise you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.